everybody. Thank you for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. Um, well, this week we had a uh, World War Three scare when Poland came out and announced that it had been hit with a missile that immediately uh, was blamed on Russia. And this almost triggered a very dangerous incident because you had people from some NATO states, including Poland, along with Ukraine, saying that Russia did this and there needed to be a collective response, including um, Ukrainian President Zelensky said that there has to be collective action. And strangely, even a U.S. official corroborated this. This is a headline from the Associated Press right after the news hit of a, new, of a missile in Poland. It said this, breaking a senior U.S. intelligence official says Russian missiles crossed into NATO member Poland, killing two people. Um, so that's a U.S. official corroborating this as well. Well, it turned out to be not the case that this was Russia. And in fact, as Joe Biden was forced to admit, this actually was a Ukrainian air defense missile. So that was good that we avoided, you know, World War III because some people were effectively calling for it. But that raised the question of, first of all, why was a senior U.S. official saying it was Russia when there was no evidence that it was? And the other obvious question is, what led to this attack? Was, it, was this just a case of Ukraine trying to shoot down a Russian missile and then Ukraine's missile mistakenly crossing into Poland? Or was this a case of a deliberate provocation to basically try to trigger World War III? Was this basically a false flag? I personally doubt that because I think to pull off a false flag like this, um, it'd be difficult to do if the missile you're shooting is so obviously Ukrainian, as was the case here. So that's why I, I don't really um, think this was a, a deliberate false flag. And I think this just was a mistake that to me underscores the dangers of this war. But it's possible. And, you know, someone who's made the case that it was basically a deliberate provocation is Scott Ritter, who I respect a lot. So let's hear some of what he had to say in the case he makes. A missile landed in Poland that killed these two citizens. That missile we now know is a Ukrainian S-300 surface-to-air missile. We know this. The serial numbers on it, everything points to Ukraine. Russia doesn't have that missile. NATO admits that they tracked this missile all the way into Poland. NATO knows where it was launched from. We know everything about this. Trust me, I used to do this for a living. When that missile was launched, we know it. When the radars were turned on, we know it. We know it's a Ukrainian missile. No, it impacted on Polish soil. Now, Zelensky may be in a situation where he's being told that it wasn't his. And I'll tell you why I believe this might be the case. There are elements of the Ukrainian military that realize, because let's put it in the context of why this missile was launched. Ukraine was getting a snot kicked out of it by 90 Russian missiles who were knocking out their electrical infrastructure and their gas production. Ukraine's going into the dark ages. And the Ukrainian military knows there's nothing they can do to stop this unless NATO intervenes. They need NATO to set up a no-fly zone over Ukraine. That would be their salvation. So to do this, somebody in the Ukrainian military, I believe, launched this missile at Poland. Why? The Russian missiles are coming in from the east to the west. The way surface-to-air missiles work is you have a big radar that detects this, then you have a little radar up front that guides a missile fired from west to east to intercept the missile. This missile went from east to west into Poland. 
how does that happen? And how does it do it on a ballistic trajectory? I know from my experience that you take it to make a surface-to-air missile, a ballistic missile, you point a radar point in the sky, the missile guides on it, and then goes to a ballistic trajectory down. Somebody in Ukraine painted the sky over Poland with a radar signature that sent a missile to Polish territory. That's the only way that missile gets to Poland. So that's Scott Ritter. And, um, you know, making the case that this certainly was launched from Ukraine. Uh, and I guess the question is, uh, was this deliberate? And again, I just think that if you're trying to make this look deliberate, then it's hard to do when the source of the missile is so easily identifiable based on the trajectory and also the serial numbers on the missile. So that's why I doubt this was a deliberate false flag. But you also never know, you know, uh, as, as Scott says, Ukraine was getting hit with a huge barrage of Russian missiles, which, of course, by the way, was entirely predictable. As we've talked about before, back in September, the New York Times cited U.S. officials warning that the most dangerous moments are yet to come because at that point they were baffled at how Russia had been relatively restrained and not going after civilian infrastructure. Well, finally, you know, after... You know, uh, so many more months of war and no diplomatic settlement being found. Russia predictably has escalated its attacks on civilian infrastructure and uh, is knocking out power stations and uh, water supplies. And yes, Russia claims that all these sites have dual purposes, which means they have a military target. And I'm sure they've crafted some sort of attempted legal justification. But the fact is, I think Russia is trying to... Uh, you know, adopt a strategy now of bringing this war to Ukrainian civilians uh, and forcing them basically to suffer in order to harden opposition to the war inside Ukraine and try to bring it to an end. And I think that was entirely predictable and could have been avoided had there been diplomacy. So that's what happened. And uh, thankfully, the Biden administration, after initially dithering, Biden initially said he wouldn't provide any information Finally, it was so obvious that this missile was not launched by Russia that the U.S. was forced to come out and say otherwise. And this even led to a moment of tension where basically NATO officials accused Zelensky's government of lying and expressed some frustration about that. Um, which, of course, raises another obvious question is if Zelensky was willing to lie about or his government was willing to lie about this being from Russia, then what else have they lied to us about? But the fact is, you know, whether this was deliberate or not, it underscores what a dangerous war this is, that incidents like this put, put us on the precipice of World War III. And who knows what happens next time, if this happens again, if something similar happens again, whether the same sort of um, cool heads will prevail. You never know. It's this constant gamble that we're playing with in keeping this war going. And it just underscores it's dangerous. So that's my rant. And we have a lot of callers, which is great. So let's get to them. Uh, Brady, go ahead. What's up, Maestro? I was at the Jimmy Dorth show last night, and a lot of people there are very excited to hear that you have a call-in show. So hopefully I was able to drag some people in here today and uh, just let Jimmy know that he's free to interact with the, the audience a little more, get a little more loose. He, he was so nervous and tense, he's afraid he's going to insult one of us, you know, or, or get kicked or something. But... <laughs> I don't know. He needs to loosen up in there and, and, and uh, do his thing. He's good. 
we, we love seeing him. It was a great show. And uh, I had an interesting situation where I was kicked out of a local music group for um, suggesting that we go anti-war caroling. Like I was just trying to do some anti-war like Christmas carols. <laughs> I thought it would be fun. Got kicked out of a local music group for that. So I think that's super whack. But I, I would recommend to everyone is checking out a documentary called What Would Jesus Buy? It's all about this guy who, uh, Reverend Billy, you might be familiar with this guy. He goes into Bank of America and he'll have like a Thanksgiving dinner for a homeless lady and inside of a Bank of America until they get kicked out, you know, (laughs) and just these brilliant protests. But he goes uh, anti-shopping caroling. He has a little caroling group that he has and they have songs about not shopping and anti-capitalist songs and They'll perform exorcisms on a Starbucks. It's really brilliant. So it's called What Would Jesus Buy? And oh, okay. Brady, happy, thanks for the call. Yeah, Cozy Hombo. Okay, Peter, go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you for the work that you do, listening from across the Atlantic. Uh, there are few voices uh, doing the work that you do over this side, so uh, we need we need you to carry on. Thanks very much. Uh, I do have a slight critique. I don't think uh, uh, Useful Idiots uh, is your best work, Aaron, and uh, I think the format maybe uh, isn't where your strengths uh, are best utilised, if you don't mind me saying. What is your issue with it? Uh, you don't think it, I'm funny? It, I think... Uh, <laughs> You're such a precise and articulate interviewer, and that that part of the show I do appreciate. But the to and fro, the banter, and especially when it's all focused on, you know, American party politics, it uh, it loses right. my interest anyway. So well, that that's the cool thing is is you don't have to listen to it. <laughs> I that that is the advantage of podcasts. So yeah. the main reason I'm calling is uh, the Ukraine issue. Uh-huh. Uh huh. In response to a couple of comments from your callers last week, which the episode I've just listened to. So one caller was trying to persuade you that the, the right wing, the far right in Ukraine isn't powerful, doesn't re- really exert the influence uh, that you attribute to it. Yes, so, this is a long exchange, if I yes. remember, from last week where, yes, the caller was basically trying to say that the right wing, the far right in Ukraine is not played a very influential role and I, you know, I was baffled by that because that goes against everything that I understand about Ukraine and I think it's just undeniable but that, but that was his position. I think, I think um, there's, there's a, a, a huge elephant in the room which is the purpose and history of NATO itself. Um, there's a book called NATO's Secret Armies by a Swiss historian, Daniela Genser. I think he's Swiss, uh, detailing the hidden history of NATO's operations within Europe. You know, what was the original purpose of NATO? We're led to believe that it was a defensive military organisation. Uh, in fact, anti-communism was at its absolute centre, and that took uh, many forms, and one of the chief purposes of NATO was to create the ability for uh, resistance in the event of the supposed Soviet invasion of European countries, Western European countries. So they did this by recruiting 
the most fervently anti-communist people they could find across Europe uh, to take part in this cellular organisation, uh, a reserve army, if you like, a small reserve army, but who were also tasked with creating uh, anti-socialist uh, uh, atrocities uh, throughout Europe. So Italy is a well-known example because they actually had a, uh, a judge who was able to investigate this in the 1980s and 90s, and some of this material came out. There was also a BBC documentary, uh, which I believe you can still find uh, on the internet. Uh, but people don't realise that the, the cooperation of NATO with the fascists, particularly throughout Europe, uh, in parallel to Operation Paperclip, where they spirited many thousands of Nazi scientists, psychologists, out of Germany after the war and employed them in various ways. So it's entirely credible that uh, the... The, the, right, the far right in Ukraine feels extremely empowered because they know that NATO is at their back, you know, both with the training, the weapons, uh, and so forth. Uh, and my last point would be this maybe gives us speculation as to what's going to happen as and when the war does wind up, in that it won't really wind, wind down, that there will continue to be uh, the, this hybrid war conducted by guerrillas and terrorists and uh, attacking Russian infrastructure. It's already begun, I think you might agree. Assassinations and so forth. Well, you know, I, uh, I don't know where this is going. Uh, and I do see a split right now of some kind inside the U.S. establishment that we haven't seen yet with... Uh, Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, basically saying that Ukraine's done all it can militarily and it's time for negotiations. Although now he's kind of backing off of that a little, I think, under political pressure. But, um, yeah, I so, you know, I'm not going to make a prediction for where it's going. And uh, I think it depends on, on many, many factors. But uh, certainly the background you, you raised about... Um, you know, Operation Gladio and all that stuff, it's its really important. And, um, you know, we don't know, for example, the extent of the U.S. role in the 2014 coup in Ukraine. You know, it's commonly referred to as a CIA-backed coup, but we actually don't know the extent of the U.S. role. All we have are clues. We have the phone call of Victoria Newland. We have, uh, and we have, as you mentioned, a deep historical tie between the U.S. and the far right in Ukraine. Um that and goes Europe back generally, yeah, in Europe, yeah, but that goes back to the Second World War, and and the far right groups that really were at the heart of the Maidan coup, again, not at the heart of the initial Maidan protests, which to me were peaceful, and you know anti corruption and pro Western and um and and organic. I don't think that was organized by the West, but the formation that co opted those protests and basically turned them into a violent attempt for regime change. Those groups have deep ties to or, or have historical ties to the U.S. They uh, come out of the Bandera movement, uh, which has deep ties to the U.S. And it would not surprise me at all if we, you know, whenever it is 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we find out that the U.S. tapped those connections to help promote regime change back in 2014. Um, and I hope we'll find out in our lifetime. These are the kinds of things we don't find out for a very long time. Like we only recently found out 
uh, you know, some key details about the U.S. role in the 1953 uh, coup in Iran when Mossadegh was, was overthrown. We only found out, it was like 2017, I think, when we found out some details about how the CIA helped organize some of the unrest. And so these are the kind of things that take a long time to emerge. But I think there's enough there to at least speculate of a heavy U.S. role. And certainly, there's just no doubt that since 2014, there's been a heavy U.S. role in Ukraine, and their key allies have been the far right. And, um, you know, I'm writing a book right now about all this. And so I've had, I've had the chance to do more research into Ukraine, which really I just hadn't done that much of before this war began, uh, because my focus was mainly, it was Russiagate, which was largely domestic, you know, just you know, the, all the details of the FBI investigation. And then it was, you know, Syria and the OPCW scandal. So I'm just catching up on, on, on Ukraine. And, and one thing, the one thing I learned recently, uh, was just more details on how the far right undermined Zelensky. I really actually believe, uh, that Zelensky did make an effort to make peace when he first ran. Um, he was elected with a big mandate to make peace. And one of the things he did was he appointed a close friend of his and his former comedy producer, because before this, of course, Zelensky had a comedy show. He appointed his close friend, um, to an advisory role on the Ukrainian National Defense and Security Council. That's, that's the approximate name. The friend's name is Sergei Savoko. And uh, Savoko, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name, he's from the Donbass. And he immediately basically started promoting a reconciliation platform and dialogue between you know, uh, Western Ukrainians and Ukrainians in the East who were under assault from Ukraine after they rose up in, in 2014 against the U.S. back coup. And in the spring of, sorry, no, in October 2019, um, around then, uh, Zelensky signed a, you know, a, a basically a new framework to implement the Minsk Accords, which was the peace accord to end the Donbass war. And to promote that, his friend his friend, Savoko, launched this national dialogue. And when he announced that, he, he had a public event announcing this new national dialogue for reconciliation. He talked about, we have to come together, we have to recognize the humanity of our fellow Ukrainians and resolve our differences. And 20 minutes into his presentation, he was attacked by members of the National Corps, which is a political organization that grew out of the Azov Battalion, the far Azov Battalion. And they prevented him from finishing his presentation, launching this, this Zelensky-approved national dialogue. And what did Zelensky do in response to his friend and his peace uh, uh, initiative being attacked, literally attacked by the far right? Zelensky fired his friend. So his friend's Savoko got fired from his job as this advisor to this Ukrainian government council. And uh, that set off this process where Zelensky basically got sufficiently intimidated to abandon his peace mandate inside with the far right. So that's just an example of how I think... I think Zelensky the intimidation was... is widespread across, the, or has been, over the past number of years. Yeah. Widespread at a local level against yes. uh, local officials, town councillors, etc. Yes. To the point yeah. of uh, violence and murder. Uh, yes. Yes. And what bothers me is that we in the US, you know, whether you're a progressive Democrat or your, you know, Lindsey Graham, the position you have to take to, quote, stand in solidarity with Ukraine 
is not to stand in solidarity with Zelensky's own election mandate, which for which he got more than 70 percent of the vote. It's to stand in solidarity with the position of the far right, that that is what is being defined right now as being in solidarity with Ukraine, is not taking the position of the majority of the electorate that put Zelensky in power. It's to take the position of those who wanted to sabotage Zelensky's peace mandate. And to try to discuss this openly here uh, is just impossible. So, you know, most Americans will have no idea about the Minsk Accords or even the fact that Zelensky tried to implement them. Because that's how to the right are, or to the, or to the Ukrainian far right, I should say, um, our politics have gotten in the U.S. And, and that's you know, similar to Syria as well, where to be in solidarity with Syria, you had to take the position of you know, sectarian death squads that wanted to um, you know, overthrow Assad and you know, crack down on, on minorities. It just... But that's who the U.S. sides with when it tries to pursue these regime change and and destabilization operations. And that goes back to what you're saying, that these are arrangements that go back many, many decades. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, Oscar. Yeah, hello. First of all, I just want to say I'm a huge fan of yours. Uh, Calling from Mexico and uh, continuing with what the previous caller was saying, I wanted to ask, how much penetration has the uh, sort of the alt-right Ukrainian Nazi ideology had on the population itself? I saw this uh, very interesting video yesterday in Twitter. I don't know. Uh, it was tweeted by uh, someone um, close to uh, Mint Prisoners. I, I can't remember who, who it was. But it was a 2018 video that showed a ton of uh, children marching, giving the Nazi salute. And so... I'm honestly um, lost here. I, I don't know how much penetration it has had with the, not with the civilians in Ukraine. That that that's what I'm uh, sort of curious about. And uh, uh, I've seen a ton of it in Latin America, for instance, here in um, in Latin America in Bolivia. Um, I don't know if you saw that uh, in Santa Cruz, the right wingers with Nazi tint have been again burning government buildings and. Uh, they sort of, uh, it looks like they're trying to make another coup in Bolivia. And I've seen a ton of videos, especially shared by Van Norton, of um, Bolivian, uh, right-wing Bolivians giving the Nazi salute. So I, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm lost as to the extent of the penetration it has, it yeah. has with the actual public. What, what's, what's your opinion? Yeah. How much is I, I, It's always been my sense that the far right has not enjoyed much popular support inside Ukraine in elections. They never do well. Their influence comes just in their muscle and that they're able to intimidate the Ukrainian government into going along with their dictates. But in terms of the support for the population, it's not very high. You know, a good example is that, you know, the Maidan coup in 2014, you know, commonly referred to as a popular revolution. Well, if you look at the polls from that time, Ukraine was totally divided. Um, so, for example, here are two political scientists writing in the Washington Post in February 2014, um, just as the coup was happening. And they say that according to polls at the time, quote, none show a significant majority of the population supporting the Maidan protest movement and several show a majority opposed. And a big factor for that, they say, 
is the uh, sort of form of you know, far-right Ukrainian nationalism that took over the Maidan protest. They say this, quote, anti-Russian forms of Ukrainian nationalism expressed on the Maidan are certainly not representative of the general view of Ukrainians. Um, and again, that's from the Washington Post in February 2014. And I think that that has continued. Now, if you speak to someone like Lev Galinkin, who's a friend of mine and Ukrainian-American journalist, he will say that actually Russia's invasion has, has increased support for the far right uh, in some areas, because in some areas, like the Azov Battalion has been the group that has defended um, Ukraine from an invasion. And no matter what you think about, you know, Azov Battalion, the fact is, if you're a local population being invaded and you don't support the invasion, you're going to support those who are resisting the invasion. So in his opinion, Russia's invasion has actually helped support for Azov and other far right groups. But in terms of the overall um, appeal of these groups now, it's, I don't know, it's hard for me to say. I, I can just say that in the last eight years or so, it's always been marginal. And their influence comes not from popular support, but just from muscle. And, and their, the, the preponderance of far-right people who have taken key roles inside the uh, national security state of, uh, of Ukraine. I mean, some really, really scary people have been elevated to high positions. For example... Uh, Dmitro uh, Yarosh, of, uh, who was the co-founder of Right Sector, he, after Zelensky won, he threatened to hang Zelensky from a tree if Zelensky made peace with the Donbass rebels. And two years later, Yarosh was appointed an advisor to the top Ukrainian military commander uh, in November 2021. Um, now, later on, Ukraine claimed that that had been withdrawn. But regardless, the fact that someone can go from threatening the president's life to being appointed a top Ukrainian military commander speaks to the influence that they have. So, uh, to being a top advisor to the military commander speaks to the influence that they have. I see. Thank you. And uh, just just super quick, uh, I don't know if uh, anyone saw about the alt-right uh, meeting that took place here in Mexico City. Uh, a ton of prominent right-wing figures such as like Bannon and uh, Trump canceled, but there was a ton of uh, right-wing uh, Spaniard politicians and um, Latin American politicians in general, kind of Nazi descended uh, Chilean politicians came here. And so I don't know, I, I just uh, as a average person, I find it scary uh, that that prominence of the of the alt right. And well, thank you. Thank you for asking, uh, answering my questions. And I'm a huge fan. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Robin. wanted to say thank you so much for um, the reporting that you do. Um, I would consider myself a small ill libertarian. You leave me alone. I leave you alone. Um, You know, but also I'm grateful for what you do because I spent a little over five years of my life in the military industrial complex. I'm personally more of an isolationist and I never understood why people, you know, would use that as a pejorative. Oh, you're an isolationist, you know? Um, But I, uh, you know, joined uh, Raytheon right after 9-11. So 9-11 happens and then I'm with Raytheon in October thinking that I'm doing my patriotic duty 
you know, serving the military and everything, um, and doing what I can. And then as time is going on and I've been listening to people like you and, and videos and things like looking at videos and things like that and going, what was I a part of? What in the world are we doing? You know, just inserting ourselves into all of these nations and, you know, you think about it and it's all, you know, it, it's never about what they say it is. And it's just, you know, it just churns my stomach. Like, for example, I think about uh, Chelsea Manning and how, you know, looking at it from a right of center perspective, it was like, oh, you know, she's mentally ill or he's mentally ill. Um, you know, what do you expect type of deal? And then when you look into what Chelsea actually uncovered and disclosed, I mean, it's how could you not be disgusted by by what's taking place? It's just, and you know, so you know, of course, when this whole Ukraine thing goes on, and it's just like, okay, you know, I'm not for Russia going in and doing X, Y, Z, but then you start peeling back the onion. Um, and you go, wait a minute, this is, this looks like we are really involved in setting this thing up. And you hear, you know, these small tales in the media from elected officials or, or military, the, you know, the military side, where basically they, you know, all but acknowledge that this is a proxy war. And I'm just like, I, I can't with this anymore. I, I cannot with this anymore. And I just, I don't know how we stop this. I really do not know how we stop this. I look to the left, I look to the right, and... Yeah, well, don't bother know. Don't bother looking to the left, at least politically. Because, uh, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, the best uh, and the most pathetic uh, illustration of this I've, I really have ever seen was when... Democrats put out a very nice uh, congressional progressives, a group of them, about like less than a third of the congressional progressive caucus put out a letter just politely asking Biden, hey, can we talk to Russia? Maybe have a negotiated settlement to this war. We're going to keep giving you money for this war, but maybe talk to Russia and let's have an effort to find a peace deal. And, you know, it took them months to put that letter together to get the signatures. I'm sure there was all sorts of, you know, painstaking word changes to make everybody happy. And it took them months to get that letter together and 24 hours for them to retract it because they couldn't handle, you know, uh, outrage from Max Boot and other uh, chicken hawks and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and also Democrats and Republicans who are mad about it. And um, even when they get vindicated by the top military officer, Mark Milley, coming out a few weeks later with the exact same stance, literally, that was Milley's stance, too. We should have diplomacy with Russia to end the war. They didn't have the um, courage. I mean, I mean, I hate to keep them called courage because what courage does it even take? They didn't even seize the opportunity to come on and say, hey, so we were right. And we actually stand by our initial call. They instead just catered to the proxy war narrative. And so that's where the left politically officially is at. And, of course, there are some actual anti-war groups like Code Pink and others that are, are trying. But it's a very difficult time right now to be on the left and to be anti-war. And um, it's changing to me what left even means. I mean, so does left now mean being pro-proxy war? Um, do I have to side with AOC 
on this over Marjorie Taylor Greene because AOC is officially on the left and Marjorie Taylor Greene is not. Even though Marjorie Taylor Greene says stuff I totally agree with. It's right. It's it's, it's a very strange time. And so um, what I'm hoping emerges from all this is sort of just, you know, uh, cross-partisan collaboration where these labels don't mean what they used to. And so we just, you know, organize around causes that we all agree with. And, and what we don't agree, we, you know, we leave it at that. Right. And so that, that that's why, again, I'm just so grateful that, you know, guys like you are out here doing this because, you know, just generally, I would not have normally listened to you, um, like I said, being kind of right of center. Uh, but I'm so glad that I found people like you that are out here you know, just uh, just telling the truth, basically. I mean, that's just, that's just yeah. amazing. Well, listen, yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. And look, and, and that's what journalism is supposed to be. It, it, it's supposed to be above partisan hackery. And, uh, you know, that, that doesn't mean I'm going to hide my own opinions. But, you right. know, the, fact, but the facts are the facts. And it's, you know, journalism should be um, divorced from partisan interests. And I, I learned firsthand in the Russiagate era that that was just not the case, that on the dumbest story of all time, because it served a partisan narrative, there was not going to be any questioning. If you, and if you questioned it, then you were somehow, um, you were a heretic and you had to be cast out. So that's, that's the era we're in now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking my call. Thank you. Uh, Square. <clears throat> Hi. Hello? Hi. Um, okay. So I have a couple of things, um, but if, if I take too long, then I'll just stop. But um, one thing I was really interested that you were saying that like you're working on writing that book about um, is the book about Ukraine or is yeah. it just yeah? It's a, I mean, at first it was it was just going to be about Russia Gate. Yeah. Because there's more than enough there to fill a book. I actually right. books, but but then the Ukraine War happened, and so basically it's about how Russia Gate helped give us the Ukraine War. Yeah. And um, um, you know, I, I've already written a lot in the last you know, six years. And so there's a lot, I'm drawing on that material, but it's a, it's a lot to summarize because Russia gate is, you know, just going back over it again. It's just so much, Yeah. you know, anyway, so I, I'm trying to synthesize it and make it a readable story. Uh, but there's just a lot to cover. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for whenever it comes out to read it. Um, I wonder if you've come across, um, it's like this series of films, they're like broken into like, 50-minute sections um, called Roses Have Thorns, which is, like, basically about Ukraine, like, 2014 to 2015. I haven't, no. Oh, okay. Um, you might want to check it out. It seems, I don't know exactly how it was done, but it seems like it's, like, a compilation of, like, various footage shot from, like, different, um, like, news organizations and also, like, people's cell phones and stuff, just, like, documenting, like, events as they were unfolding in the country over that period of time. Okay, and it's uh, called Roses Have Thorns? Yeah, um, and if you look it up on Google, you probably have to put Ukraine after it or else you won't get anything relevant. Uh, but it was right. done by Watchdog Media. Um, okay. And, I mean, it definitely has, like, very, like, disturbing material in it at times. Like, they have a whole episode. or I don't want to call it an episode. They're, one of the segments is entirely about um, the Odessa Massacre, for example, mm. um, with, like, footage of it actually happening. So just mm. warning to anybody that is interested in watching it, that it is very challenging at times, but, um, and, and Odessa for people who don't know, that's, oh, yeah, in, sorry. That, that's in May, 2014, where, you know, you have, uh, you know, these actions taking place that are counter to the Maidan coup. Mm -hmm. 
so you had the Maidan revolution, but then you have the counter Maidan, where you have people, especially in Ukraine's east, who are revolting against the coup. And the most gruesome incident comes in Odessa, where uh, you have dozens of Maidan protesters who are um, who have an encampment in, in Odessa, and they're confronted by members of the far right, including Andre Perubi, who is a co-founder of Svoboda, a, a major far right party, and was the commandant of the Maidan uh, protest. He basically was the head of security for for the Maidan protest. And then after the coup, he became he was appointed to a key security post in the government. And so he comes to Odessa along with dozens of other far right uh, forces and uh, anti-coup protesters in Odessa are pushed into a building and they're burned alive. And as people try to flee the flames, they're beat, they're beaten. And um, that was a horrible massacre that had a huge impact on the psyche of, of ethnic Russians and uh, just others who oppose the coup inside Ukraine. And was a major factor in the outbreak of uh, of the ensuing, you know, uh, Donbass war because people felt, understandably, targeted and persecuted by the new coup government. And there have never been any, as far as I understand, never any prosecutions or or any serious investigations into what happened in Odessa in May 2014. And it's just something we're, we're not allowed to hear about because it helps to provide context to what has happened in Ukraine that leads to the wrong conclusions. So it's just try to so most americans will never have heard about about that incident yeah and like i had heard about it but like watching like i mean because like people that were like participating in the massacre like we're filming the whole thing like live streaming it basically mm. so it's just like knowing it like as your description of it and then like watching it as it unfolded is just like it's so much worse than any description can like do justice to. Sure, um, of course. But like it also uh, going back to like what another caller was saying or wondering about in terms of like how much in the like general population of Ukraine like these um like sort of far right or like fascist or whatever um like ideologies and beliefs have taken hold. Like I think that um at least I haven't watched all of like all of the videos yet. Um, but so far it seems like it's really identifying that like. Like you said, there's like a small group or there's a small portion of the population that does hold that ideology. But then also what it identifies is like a lack of sort of like state response or like intervention to like prevent like those individuals from like committing acts of violence. So it sort of like it really shows this like atmosphere of just like a complete like lack of safety and like day to day life for like yes. people that they were targeting. And look, you know, this is why in the U.S. media before Russia's invasion and the years before, you know, the U.S. media was allowed to call Azov uh, a neo-Nazi organization. And the Atlantic Council, you know, which is a NATO think tank, had articles about what, what a major problem the far right in Ukraine were. I mean, there's one Atlantic Council article that says, you know, Ukraine has a major far right problem. And no, RT didn't write this headline is <laughs> because it's because that, you know, it, it was it was a big deal. And they played an extrajudicial role where they just had an influence over state policy, even though, again, their support from the population was very small. Uh, and that's because the state was weak and didn't have the capacity to stand up to them. And also because these same forces played a very ma major role in bringing the government to power in 2014.
Yeah. And, um, uh, okay. and, that's, and that's why all along my argument has been that Ukraine needed the U.S. with its huge leverage over Ukraine to play a positive role. And a, the U.S. position, in my opinion, has been constantly to side with Ukraine's far right and to actually downplay their role. So, for example, and I, and I write about this in the book. So in March 2014, you have, you know, the, the, the coup government just come in. And uh, they're they're doing things like they're trying to ban the Russian language officially. So like you know, Russian is no longer you know, recognized as an official minority language inside Ukraine. And they're cracking down on anti-coup protesters. And a U.S. official, this is in March 2014, tells Reuters that Svoboda, you know, which was um, founded, basically inspired by the uh, Nazis in Germany. That's when it was founded. Um, that Savota, according to the U.S. official, which also played a major role in the coup, um, is moderating. It's turning into a moderating force so that it's becoming a more mainstream party, okay? Uh, like a, ma- a more mainstream European party. Um, kind of like how the U.S. would talk about moderate rebels inside Syria. Well, okay, so that's March 2014. Well, something like 12 days later, there's a story about how members of Svoboda, this supposed moderate party, uh, during a, they went into the office of the state broadcaster uh, and filmed themselves beating the chief executive of Ukraine state broadcaster because the state broadcaster had broadcast a speech of Vladimir Putin where Putin was announcing the annexation of of Crimea and so they beat this guy filmed themselves doing it until he signed a letter of resignation so that is the new moderate Svoboda uh, or you know uh, according to the U.S. is you know. Uh, people who beat a state broadcaster executive because he aired the wrong speech and forced him to resign. Um, another thing that, um, like, I'm curious, because I have wondered, too, about, like, whether Zelensky was, like, um, sort of genuine in terms of, like, running as a peace candidate. Because, like, um, you have you heard of um, Igor Kolomoisky? Yes. Uh, the yes. Oligarch? And, I mean, so, like, he basically, like, a hundred percent like created and funded the um tv network that like the show that Zelensky was like um playing the role of the president yep. in like um so Igor Kolomoisky basically it seems like was behind Zelensky's like rise to like such widespread like fame and popularity yes. and also Igor Kolomoisky I don't remember if it was Azov or another one of the no it was Azov he was yeah the, and he was the main funder of, of Azov and actually and not just Azov but other far-right battalions, too. Yeah. So that is definitely, uh, that's definitely a piece of evidence that would undermine the claim that Zelensky was serious about making peace. But Kolomoisky also, he's a oligarch, and he just ultimately wanted to make, make money, I think. And I think uh, the reason why he tolerated Zelensky's peace platform is he recognized that this was bad for business, that, you know, losing the Donbass for Ukraine was seriously depleting its its coffers. I mean, the Donbass is the economic heartland of Ukraine. So I think Kolomoisky actually was okay with uh, peace because it would give him opportunities to make money again, um, which is, I think, his top concern. But yes, I, I, I totally get that if you're looking for evidence that Zelensky was not serious, the fact that he's bankrolled by the chief funder <laughs> of the Azov Battalion is definitely... Uh, a, a piece of evidence that 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 is, is is fair enough to mention. I just think when I look at what Zelensky actually did, I see actual concrete steps. Yeah. He signed on to this formula called the Steinmeier formula, which is basically an effort to uh, implement Minsk. He built a bridge 
uh, between the Donbass and Ukraine, like like an actual bridge that allowed for the facilitation of, you know, the return of people and and and, and of humanitarian goods that had been cut off. Um, he went to the front lines and directly confronted some Azov people. Hmm. Uh, and he appointed, his, as I mentioned earlier on this call, he appointed a friend of his who was from the Donbass to launch this sort of dialogue uh, initiative. And so I, you know, again, you know, not having, I've never been to Ukraine and uh, this is only from my, you know, very limited research, but I, my sense is he actually tried, but he just, the threats to him were just too much. But of course I could be completely wrong on that. It could have been a complete front. And um, it's, I, I totally understand why people suspect that, but I will say this, I will say this. I'm sorry to, to hog the mic a little bit, but you know, <laughs> there's a video that that has been going around of, of of a meeting with Zelensky and some journalists in October 2019. And in the video, Zelensky sounds like a complete war hawk. He says, we're ready for war. We're going to retake Donbass. We're, you know, we're, we're prepared, blah, 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 blah. Okay. But that video was deceptively edited. And because right before he, he's, he makes those comments, if you look at his full remarks, he says that, you know, uh, some people want a president who will say all these things, blah, blah, blah. And, he, and then and that's when he says, you know, we're going to go and, and have war. But then he says, I'm not that president. I want peace. So that piece of evidence, if you've ever seen that circulated, is basically fabricated. And, and, that, and that to me is actually evidence that he actually wanted to, to make peace. Now, something changed because in 2021, uh, he started changing his tune a lot. And uh, he started being you know, r- really mirroring the rhetoric of his of people who are threatening to kill him, saying, I will never talk to these terrorists. And that was a major problem with the Minsk Accords is in implementing them is he refused to speak to the rebel leaders. He only would speak to Russia. Right. And that made it very difficult to get any- anything done. So certainly at some point he adopted the, the position of the far right. But I think that was only after he was sufficiently intimidated and had no backing from the U.S. Because what happened in the U.S. right as Zelensky came into office and was launching his initiatives to, you know, end the Donbass war. Trump was impeached for what? For freezing weapons to Ukraine that fueled that war. Right. So right as Zelensky's trying to, you know, make peace, the U.S. is impeaching its own president because he briefly paused some weapons that fueled the war that Zelensky was trying to end. And when Adam Schiff is getting up and saying that we fight, that we aid Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there, we don't have to fight Russia here. What is the message that Ukraine is being sent? And what is the message that Americans are being sent? We have to keep fueling this fight. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't want to take up too much more time. So I just want to say like one other thought that I have that um, is like that. I'm just like wondering sort of about like Biden's overall role, like starting back in 2014, like to now, um, especially in terms of like, I've re- I haven't read extensively on it, and I feel like I wouldn't necessarily be able to understand and, like, take it apart, but, like, um, that company Burisma that, like, mm-hmm. um, Hunter Biden, like, was serving on the board of, I don't know if he still is, um, like, it seems he's not, like... Hmm? He, he's not anymore, no. He, oh, okay. He made, um, a, you know, he, he made a lot of money, but... And, yeah. And, uh, and did nothing, but but that that grift has come to an end for him, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, well, so, like... It seems there's like someone on paper that seems to own it, but like there's a lot of like um, evidence linking Burisma also to um, Kolomoisky, which I just think is like interesting, like potential like data point in the whole scheme of trying to understand things. Um, and then also like it's just like 
curious to me trying to ponder all of that that like i think it was sometime last year that um the u.s um sanctioned kolomoisky finally um so it's just like i don't know i think that all of the, like everything happening in ukraine is like complicated by it being like in some ways ideological and in some ways geopolitical and in some ways like financial and like all of the different oligarchs in ukraine like vying for power and stuff like that and then the U.S.'s role in that and like how the U.S. may or may not or certain people in the U.S. may or may not be making money from what's going on. Um, but anyway, so do you want to know what's funny about the U.S. Oh. sanction in Kolomoisky is yeah. not long ago, Kolomoisky started talking about getting along with Russia. Hmm. And again, going back to what I was saying before was that he just wanted to make money. And, and you know, this war has been not has been horrible for Ukraine economically. Yeah. And so, look, I don't know if there's a connection between Kolomoisky calling for peace with Russia and then him getting sanctioned by the U.S., but I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's a causal connection there. I'll, I'll have to look yeah. that up to see if, like, like, what the timeline is. But Yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, no, and in terms of Biden, um, look, uh, if you listen to the phone call with Victoria Newland and right. uh, Jeffrey Piat back in February, back in, you know, early, back in, I guess it was in January 2014 when they're talking, maybe February, a few weeks before the coup, you know, they say that to, you know, to get their plan into motion, they need uh, the attaboy from Biden and Jake Sullivan right. and that they had and that Jake Sullivan and Biden had given the attaboy. And so, you know, Biden in taking on this role of helping to, you know, um, you know, install and oversee Ukraine's new government played a, that gave him a huge role in Ukraine. And that's why Hunter Biden was gifted with that board seat. And there's even some leaked phone calls between Biden and Poroshenko, who is uh, the, the president before Zelensky. And they're interesting. I haven't listened to them in full and they're hard to find. They've only been aired in the U.S., I think, in like a documentary on um, on OAN, uh, One American News, which is a, a conservative TV network. But they're interesting and, and they show that Biden played a major role. And one of the calls is basically Biden complaining because there was a an attempted uh, basically terror attack inside Crimea that Biden was angry about because he said it, 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 it threw the U.S. off guard. The U.S. didn't know about it. So it's huh. that's interesting. And and, yes. uh, and of course, how did Biden use his leverage over Ukraine back then? Well, he got the prosecutor who was investigating Brisbane fired. And, right. you know, that, you know, uh, that's something I have to look into more as well. But it just shows certainly he played a huge role in Ukraine and it helped get it helped give us this war. Yeah. Um, undoubtedly. So, well, yeah, but okay. So thank you so much. And I don't want to take more time. Thank um, you. Thanks for the call. Okay. Gator. Hey, Aaron. Um, one of the things about the, uh, the recent missile attack is, uh, quite a sort of standard modus operandi and it's the speed and certainty of which statements are made by any given side. So I think within, within a few hours, perhaps of the event, Zelensky's presidential accusation was out. The British newspapers, the Times, Telegraph, Guardian, I think, and the Mail, all had front front page headlines blame, blaming with certainty Russia in exactly the same style and at the same pace as the MH17 shoot down was pinned on on um, uh, Putin with no investigation. And then and the polls obviously were backing Zelensky's position within hours. And you know this is almost kind of. Um, moronic propaganda 101 in that respect the giveaway is who says anything first and that's basically the lie is pretty much you know what one of the ways i would assess that i mean do you think that's reasonable for me to say that 
Absolutely. And the fact that, it, it, I mean, I, see, I wasn't surprised that Poland and Zelensky quickly blame Russia because, uh, of course, they will. But the fact that a senior U.S. official also bolstered that accusation when that was leaked to the AP, that to me was really striking because, you know, the U.S. knows exactly um, who is firing every missile inside of Ukraine. There's a lot of radars there. Uh, to know exactly what's going on. So the fact that somebody would go out of their way to, to in the U.S. to blame Russia uh, was uh, was very conspicuous. But just very uh, on on that. Although I don't want to bear, um, I'm just curious intellectually about your perspective as a journalist. This this notion of you know unnamed sources, anonymous sources, is frequent, increasingly frequent. In fact, in in news reporting. Where is the journalistic ethic or standard of actually using that? Because as far as I can tell, if any story contains a, an unnamed, unofficial, but, you know, anonymous state source, it probably doesn't even exist. And the journalist is literally making up stuff because how do they hold them accountable for that first step for saying that? Well, I don't agree with that. Uh, I do agree, though, with, you know, you, your suggestion that if you're given demonstrably false information, there needs to be accountability. So um, I've used anonymous sources and I will continue to because I have to, because I have to protect people who are giving me uh, stuff that can get them in trouble if, if it's found out who they are. Uh, but when someone gives you false information and it's demonstrably false, like it was the case here, that to me raises the question of, you know, do you have an obligation to, uh, I don't know about out your source, uh, but at minimum, seek accountability and explain what happened and ask your source to explain why they gave you false information. Um, you know, so that's an example where I think certainly if someone gives you information that could trigger world war three, I think you have an obligation at minimum to pursue that doggedly and possibly even out them because if they're giving you fake information and there's, they have no reasonable explanation for it, then they're being reckless. And that's a story in itself that someone's trying to basically, mm risk World War III. Another example, although it's not as uh, serious as this one, but it's very consequential. Um, and this still blows my mind. Back in February 2017, so Trump's first month in office, there's a headline in the New York Times, and it's called something like, Trump aides had repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials. Mm. And the lead says that according to multiple U.S. officials, so I think four, you know, four current and former U.S. officials, the U.S. has intercepted phone calls and contacts between members of the Trump camp speaking with senior Russian intelligence officials. That's a huge allegation. The president's circle is speaking to senior Russian intelligence. And, and this is, you know, for the period, you know, well before the election. So not, not like they're talking to them after they come into office, but in the year before the election, during the campaign, when now... Trump's being accused of conspiring with Russia. The U.S. has intercepted phone calls of the Trump camp talking to senior Russian intelligence officials. And what this story is basically doing is suggesting that there was a, a major plot, a conspiracy between Trump and senior Russian intelligence officials, right? Major allegation. Yeah. Treasonous, almost. You're basically, you're, you're basically accusing the president in a circle of being, of, of being guilty of treason. Uh, zero evidence for the story. Uh, four months later, finally, under questioning in Congress, Jim Comey, who's still director of the FBI, admits that it was, he says, no, it wasn't true. And the Times has never explained why they printed that, who told them that, and what evidence they 
uh, obtained to substantiate it. Because, but, but, because of course, be it, there is no evidence, and uh, it was fabricated. And they have no interest at all in corroborating the story to the point where uh, one of the article, one of the uh, one of the writers on that story is a New York Times correspondent named Michael Schmidt. And a few years after that story, he writes a book about RussiaGate uh, based on his reporting. Well, amazingly, his book about RussiaGate doesn't even mention his own most explosive story about RussiaGate. This huge scoop he got, which is that the Trump camp was talking to senior Russian intelligence officials. Well, how do you go from writing something like that in the New York Times to then writing a book based on your reporting uh, in the New York Times and not even mentioning that, that explosive mm-hmm. story. It's because you were used to launder disinformation and you have no standards at all and you don't care. Uh, you don't care about holding your sources accountable and you don't care about spreading outright lies. And the Times you know, went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for its uh, reporting so-called on the Russian investigation. And there's been no effort at all to revisit that story. In fact, They've even claimed vindication when the Treasury Department, after Biden came in, put out a press release that accused this Manafort aide, Konstantin Kalimnik, who I've interviewed and done a lot of you know, stories on, when they accused him of being a Russian spy, of course, with zero evidence and while ignoring all the countervailing evidence that I've written about. And that, the Times claimed, was vindication of their story, even though even if you accept that Kalimnik really is a Russian spy, which... I think is just a ridiculous allegation, especially given he was a trusted source of the U.S. embassy in Ukraine. But even if you accept it on faith, the allegation at the time was not that they spoke to one, you know, Russian officer. It was that they spoke to senior Russian intelligence officers. And no one ever tried to accuse Klimnik of being a senior Russian officer. And certainly only one person. And the Times story was multiple people. So the point is, they printed an outright fabrication of no interest at all in correcting it, even though if they did, that would help. That would do a lot to explain about how we got scammed with RussiaGate to begin with because of stories like that. Mm. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. I appreciate that. Thanks, Aaron. Um, quickly on, the, just going back to the, the conflict. Um, this, this, where in terms of the far right ideology, my concern is that where we end, wherever we end up territorially, say for example, you, the, the, the Russia manages to annex what it holds in the east and and the southern land bridge possibly over to Odessa what that kind of represents is 95 plus percent of the GDP of Ukraine with the remainder being smashed and deprived and Mm. in a way that would be the perfect feeding ground for um, you know cultural hatred essentially between those who remain Ukrainian citizens and those who become the Novorossian because in a way Russia can essentially reconstruct what it holds using the gas um, reserve money, essentially from under the DPR, for example. But also um, something that it doesn't seem to be being talked about at the moment is the fact that the EU, the US EU sanctions against Russia have seized over $400 billion worth of um, Russian foreign assets for yeah. foreign denominated assets, essentially we're not even paying for this war. So all of the money that we're allocating from the US, the UK and everything else is just going to be taken and tapped out of that. And then the reconstruction side of it is already being mooted from those funds, right? So Russia's double paying for this war effectively. And we're not really even crediting them with that because of because the sanctions are not being described in that way. Uh, that's interesting. And um, I, I didn't realize that the GDP figure was, was that high, um, highly concentrated in the you know, regions that 
that Russia is taking. But again, it, to me, it just speaks to how suicidal it was for Ukraine to not implement the Minsk Accords. Because, you know, if they implement Minsk, then they keep all of Ukraine. All they have to do is grant ethnic Russians some limited autonomy, basically recognize them as equals. That's pretty much what it was. Yeah. Uh, and yes, not join NATO because autonomy would have meant that 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 the uh, that these regions have a card over Ukraine joining NATO. So, but in exchange for that, they get to keep all of Ukraine and get to keep all the wealth that that is produced in those regions. And it would have been better for everybody. But again, that's just the far right stepping in and um, uh, making peace. I think impossible. And I have no idea what's going to happen. But if that is the outcome where Ukraine permanently loses all of that, I think that they can foremost blame their own far right and the people in Washington that that enabled them. Okay, thank you for the call. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Brent. Hi, Aaron. Hi there. Hi, so um, I've been a huge fan of your reporting because um, obviously uh, media, mainstream media, when they report on this war, they only report basically one side. And the only other way I'd be able to hear the other side is if I either I went to Russia and Ukraine or if I hear other sources. So obviously it's easier to hear from like yourself. And so I just want to say that really quickly. And my question was, um, if despite the corruption of Ukraine and the U.S.'s unnecessary involvement in prolonging the war, uh, you say that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was illegal and um was illegal and criminal what does what did ukraine have to do in order for russia to invade ukraine in a legal and um non-criminal way well um ukraine didn't attack russia right now ukraine did attack and this is where it gets complicated yeah because there are sort of competing uh, international rights here. So everyone has the right to not be invaded, but also right. people inside countries have the right to self-determination and to be protected from ethnic discrimination. And can you say that Ukraine respected the self-determination and you know uh, cultural and ethnic rights of its ethnic Russian population? I don't think they did uh, with, the, with the Donbass war that began after the... Uh, 2014 coup in which 14,000 people died. So Russia will say that we were defending, yes, not Russia proper, but ethnic Russians inside Ukraine who were being attacked and bombarded. And it is true that right before Russia invaded, there was a major escalation of attacks coming from the Ukrainian side on the Donbass. That was reported by the OSCE. So I don't think it's like a clear cut case of like the Iraq war, which is just an outright case of uh, aggression based on lies. I do think this one is more complicated. But ultimately, I just don't think that... I can't accept that Russia had no option but to invade. Uh, because I think to justify an invasion, to justify killing people and sending your, your own people off to die, you have to show that you exhausted all diplomatic options. And yes, Russia did make an effort. They submitted proposals to the U.S. and NATO in December. U U.S. and NATO... NATO pretty much dismissed them, although the U.S. showed a little bit of flexibility, although not that much. Um, and, and right before Russia invaded, Zelensky refused to speak to the Donbass uh, leaders uh, and 
his own officials even said that if we implement the Minsk Accords, it's a death sentence for Ukraine. So yes, there are a lot of factors, I think, that show that Ukraine had no interest in ending the Donbass war. And that then, I think, helps Russia make the case that, you know, intervening was a legitimate act of defense for the self-determination of the people of the Donbass. I still think, though, you ha- it's, there's a huge bur- burden of evidence you have to meet, and I haven't seen Russia meet it. Um, I'm open to their argument, but I just haven't seen them do it. And um, that's why I say that I, I think that the invasion was wrong and illegal. And But uh, there's going to be some pushback to that. They're going to say, well, the Donbass is in Ukraine. And um, so how does Russia have the right to get involved in another country's affairs? I mean, well, I know because, that's a specific way because, to think of it. but Because, well... Two things. I mean, there's the precedent of NATO intervening in in Serbia right. in the late 1990s, right? <laughs> uh, but the difference is, you know, this is Russia doing it on on its border and with people who are historically part of Russia. I mean, these are regions that used to be a part of Russia, so you know, Russia can say that. And also, what people forget is that the leaders of, of the rebellion, you can call them Russian puppets if you want, but the fact is, they did ask for Russia's help. They did, you know, basically. Uh, request assistance from Russia. And so at least formally, there was a request made. Now, some people say that that was fake because that was basically Russian puppets asking for Russia's help. Um, I don't think they're Russian puppets. I do think that the rebellion in the Donbass was organic and had had some local support. Uh, but um, that's that that's the argument that Russia would make. I see. I see. I, I mean, I I just wonder if we if some if people in the U.S. like uh, I don't know Southern California or Southern Texas if they made that argue if if that argument was applied to Mexico and the U.S. Um, I don't know if that would really go as well in terms of the the general public because that's that's the analogy they would make. But this war is very complicated. So well, the U.S. made that exact argument in uh, in the former Yugoslavia. You know, so. Um... And that led to the, the the creation of Kosovo. So, I mean, there is a precedent that Russia can say it, it's following. And um, I don't agree with it personally. I think there had to be other ways to avoid a full-scale invasion. Uh, right. You know, like for, like, for example, I mean, why didn't Russia try to get peacekeepers into the Donbass? At least try. I mean, I'm sure the U.S. would have vetoed it, but at least try. That could at least bolster your case. I mean, and that's an example to me of exhausting all diplomatic options before you make the decision to go to war, which has been so disastrous. And I just think so, war should, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I just want to say really quick. So what, let's say um, they exhausted all those and the, the, the war continued in the Donbass. Uh, so they exhaust all options. So now they, they should be able to invade Ukraine? Or... If, if you can credibly show that, a, um, that the people of the, of the Donbass want Russian intervention to stop the assault from Ukraine that's been going on for eight years in which, again, 14,000 people died, um, then, yeah, then that's a, a case where it's not just a, where the, you know, yes, you have Ukraine's sovereignty being violated, but you also have the self-determination of the people of the Donbass being violated. And they do have rights under, under international law. And I'm not an international law scholar, but I do think you can construct a case that's at least legally debatable as to whether or not they have the right to ask for Russian intervention. Um, so I, th- I, I think it's possible. Like I'm not, I'm not a pacifist, you know, I, I think war sometimes is 
justified. And I think Russia was in a very, very tough position, especially, too, because, you know, on top of the war in the Donbass, where you have all these ethnic Russians being killed and, you know, inside Russia, that was like inside Russia, there are people who wanted Russia to intervene eight years ago, uh, you know, after the U.S. backed coup, when, you know, the Azov Battalion and others were attacking ethnic Russians. And, you know, there was a strong current inside Russia for intervention then. And Putin said, no, uh, he wanted to basically pursue the the Minsk Accords. Um, and that was the Russian policy. But um, I do think that there are, are cases when uh, when there's no dip, like diplomatic option on the table and you've exhausted all all efforts, then, yeah, where war is the only choice. I, and I'm open to that argument here. I just don't think the case has been made. Uh, although, you know, some people like Scott Ritter make that case. Um, and I'm open to it. I, I'm not going to dismiss it. Um, but I just think, again, because war to me should be the, the option of last resort, you need to show that you've exhausted every single other alternative. I see. I see. All right. Thank you. Thanks. All right. All right. Uh, Jan. Hello, Aaron. Hi there. Hey, I've got a, um, first of all, thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, I learn a lot from you. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I, I'm puzzled about something, trying to get an on-ramp for you, you know, off-ramp, sorry, for coming out of the Ukraine conflict. So given the difficulties that Zelensky's clearly had in standing up to his far right, um, you know, how can Putin, for example, even trust that he'll actually be able to enforce any agreements he makes when, you know, clearly before he hasn't really been able to enact anything like Minsk. Uh, so great question. That's why it, Putin's been trying to involve the U.S. all along. Right. And, you know, we're, we're even like there was a point where he wouldn't even speak to Zelensky because he, you know, his position was that the U.S. needs to act as the guarantor of 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 security here. And the U.S. really has a huge leverage over Ukraine. So that's that's why Putin before the war. Uh, submitted his draft treaties not to Ukraine but to the U.S. and NATO. Right, and then convenient for the U.S. who wants to see the conflict continue, it would appear to say, "Oh no, no, no! Uh, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Right. It's, yes, it's really about them, right?" Which also isn't true because we know that when Ukraine actually tried to negotiate with Russia back in March and April, Boris Johnson came over and sabotaged it. And there's no way Boris Johnson would have done that if he didn't have the green light from the U.S., if not the order from the U.S. and um, and we know that the U.S. knew about it because Fiona Hill wrote that in Foreign Affairs in September, that the U.S. officials knew that there was the outline of a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine. And we know from Ukrainian media that it was Boris Johnson that sabotaged that. So, yeah. Right. right. So, yeah, I'm, that all makes sense. So it's, it's, it's tricky then because you can't have a negotiation without all the players at the table who really hold the power. And until the U S is willing to admit their, their, you know, station and their standing. And, and I guess that would imply culpability for funding the far right all these years, um, having their part in the Maidan situation. Um, I guess, yeah, maybe this explains why Putin's ratcheted up and he's actually doing a war now that's, you know, aim to actually take out some infrastructure now that he's realized perhaps that you know u.s is clearly not coming to the table um let's just do this yeah that's sad yeah and you know what i meant to say before is you know although i don't support the invasion i i do think russia was put into a corner because again this isn't even just about 
the Donbass war in Ukraine. This also is about, you know, the steady expansion of NATO to Russia's borders. And U.S. officials have warned for years, Fiona Hill, um, Bill Burns and others. Yet that, means that. That, exactly. That yet means that that Ukraine joining NATO, uh, as Burns warned back in 2008, would mean that Russia would put we put in a situation that if a civil war breaks out in Ukraine, uh, because of this effort to integrate Ukraine into NATO and bring it closer to the West, that Russia would be forced to intervene and take a side on behalf of its own um, uh, population that mm-hmm. that um, that would not want to be a part of NATO. And so that's why Russia has always had this position that Ukraine should be neutral, not a part of of any camp. But that just wasn't tolerable to uh, neocons in Washington and to, and to Ukraine's far right. And and there's also and, and this is the part that gets talked about the least, but I think it's just as important. Uh, the U.S. has been dismantling arms control treaties with Russia in the last 20 years. Right. Uh, the, the ABM treaty was killed under Bush by John Bolton. And then John Bolton came back under Trump because Trump, for some reason, appointed a series of people who did everything they could to undermine everything he campaigned on when it comes to foreign policy, including John Bolton. And John Bolton picked up where he left off under Bush and killed the INF treaty. And both these actions of killing these treaties allowed uh, for the development of a whole new class of, of weapons again, which the U.S. can station around uh, Russia, which it did. Um, it's positioned missiles in uh, uh, missile sites in Poland and, and, and Romania that it says are being used to defend Europe from Iranian missiles, which is just a joke. Nobody <laughs> believes that. But those yeah. missile sites can hit Russia, and Russia doesn't have comparable sites aimed at the U.S. And the threat that these that these that these offensive weapons would also go to Ukraine also was a major factor in um, Russia's invasion. And and Russia basically used the threat of invading Ukraine to, to get the U.S. to roll back those missile systems in places like Poland and Romania. So Ukraine was basically caught in the middle of a much larger game, and now it's paying the price. Wow. Was that a preview of part of your book that you're uh, working on? Uh, that is definitely discussed in my book yes, yes. <laughs> that's yes. great yes. hey i don't want to take in more time but uh I, you're so humble in in your work I, I um i just want you to know that i and and some of my friends we um support you on substack uh in in ways that we can and i thought that perhaps you might be able to plug and let people know how they might be able to support your work and uh, i'll sign off with that thank you well thanks thank you i, I really appreciate that I really appreciate the support. And yes, I am on Substack and you can subscribe there at uh, matte.substack.com. And thank you for being a supporter. Okay, um, Heidi. Hi, uh, yeah, my main question is, I've seen a little clip of Michael Hudson on some kind of a panel talking about the um, similarities between uh, what the U.S. did with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 70s and what they're doing with Ukraine now. And I can't for the life of me find the the full video of it. I was wondering if you happen to know or be familiar with it. No, I, I don't. I don't. But I do know that Hillary Clinton uh, early on in the Russian invasion said pretty much the same thing, that uh, we have a situation like we did with the Soviet Union in the 1980s, where the U.S. supported the, the Mujahideen. And she mentioned how that didn't go in the direction the U.S. wanted it. And what she meant by that was, you know, 9-11. <laughs> but, uh, but so that's certainly an analogy that's been made by many people, including Hillary Clinton. I didn't even know that, and I hate her. Anyway, 
And then the only other thing I was going to say was, um, I don't know if, if you paid attention, I'm sure you did, uh, about how Russia was going or asked to present evidence of the um, biolabs in Ukraine. And I, I've heard some rumors that they were like weaponizing anthrax or something like that, but I didn't dig into it. Uh, but of course, the U.S. vetoed it uh, or didn't allow it to be presented. So I, I'm kind of I, I love hearing your take on all this. And I just think that there's information that that we're not privy to that, you know, Russia really did was justified in what they did. But um, I like how you're even keeled about it. So thanks. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I personally, I'm not convinced about the biolab stuff um, and uh the biolabs allegations to me, um, I, I haven't seen the evidence for it, but again, I, I haven't looked into it. So maybe this, maybe there's something I'm missing, but thank you for the call. Uh, okay. Zach. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, I uh, just want to say, uh, thanks. Uh, I was on a call a few, uh, one or two weeks ago, but, um, just, I just respect the having, uh, you know, uh, opposing views and, and making yourself available to opposing views. I just think that's, uh, shows just honesty and integrity. And I just, I love that. So I, I wish there were more people that came on here and gave you the public, uh, the devil's advocate argument. It's not me today, unfortunately, but I, but I like when other people do. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the, uh, media threshold, uh, for like turning the, turning the talk, at least on mainstream media, you know, Russell Brand just, uh, interviewed Max Blumenthal, 6 million subscribers for Russell Brand, Mac, you know, uh, Jimmy Dore is a million subscribers. There's five, 400 people on this call. Like at what point do you think in your mind this starts to turn? Oh, I don't know. Um, I have no idea. I, uh, I can, I can, just, <laughs> I can just try to do my job the best I can. And, you know, uh, but yeah. certainly, certainly we're going to try to, um, you know, I, I'd like to go back to doing, you know, regular, like, uh, video TV. I mean, I, I, I used to work at democracy now, which is like a, a, mm -hmm. a aggressive new show. And, uh, you know, it's a daily show. And I really like that, that schedule, but, you know, you being a regular presence in people's lives and daily, yeah. you know, the, like the daily process of putting out news, but it just, it, it takes resources to do that. And it takes, it takes staff and, um, yeah. I'm trying to build to build towards that because because I, I, now I can just only put out stuff when I'm ready to do it. So I'd like to go back to that when I can. But for now, I'm just trying to finish this book, and that's my main concern. Yeah. Well, good luck on the book. Can't wait to read it, and I I, I support you doing the daily news. <laughs> um, Appreciate it. Yeah, and I saw Tucker Carlson. Uh, what, I, maybe your thoughts, if you saw, you know, Tucker Carlson last night, uh, you know, just coming out headlines across the bottom of his his nightly news, saying, you know, GOP needs to stop funding uh, the war. And yeah. so I just want that was I thought that was in, in, uh, good. I didn't see that, but uh, I, you know, it's incredible that Tucker Carlson is our guy <laughs> on this issue. Yeah, it's just incredible. There's so many things where I, I don't agree with him, but. On no, this for issue, sure. And this issue, it's not even close. I mean, honestly, I think it is better coverage than Democracy Now, yeah. which is uh, on this topic. Uh, and I just find that absolutely insane to utter those words. But I, unfortunately, it's it's true. And that's um, where we're at. That's where we're at. Yeah. Okay. And uh, oh, sorry, Aaron. Just and one one more quick one, uh, if you don't mind. Um, just uh, then, John Stewart inter interviewing Hillary uh, Clinton and Condoleezza Rice on his new podcast. I, I just that was I don't know so if you... sad because th that was so sad <laughs> because yeah I mean what can I say um I you know John Stewart I mean 
Yeah, John Stewart was an inspiration to me and like many other people. And I always thought he was, you know, he's always been a part of that, that, that liberal media class, but he always struck me as being different. He was very inspired by George Carlin and he was funny. I mean, and he is funny still, I think. But that interview, he's interviewing, especially Condi Rice, where he did so much to challenge the Iraq war. And now he's giving her a platform just to spew all these lies about how they, we thought they had, we had weapons of mass destruction. When he knows that they concocted all that based on lies, deliberately. And Hillary Clinton, too, and all the things, you know, defending the war in Libya and defending the dirty war in Syria, where she basically, she basically said that the U.S. had no role in Syria, which is just such a joke. This is the most expensive program in the CIA's history. Uh, $1 out of every $15 in the CIA's budget went into Syria. And I don't know if John Stewart knows that, but he, you know, the fact that his team put this out and there was just no pushback at all. And the only pushback he gives them is on, is on whether or not, you know, intervening in Libya is effective. Presuming that we have the right to do that in the first place. And um, I was very sad to see that. Yeah. And to me, it's a reflection of just how corrupted and hollowed out and uh, just neutered our media class has gotten. I mean, you know, John Stewart 20 years ago wouldn't, couldn't have gotten away with this, you know. Uh, same with Colbert. I mean, the Colbert Report used to be actually kind of um, subversive. And it, it was totally subversive, actually. And look at him now. It's just... And for it's what? Bad. And for what? You know, it's just... It's, it, it, it's a shame. But, you know, it's, it's very easy to, to complain about other people. And, yeah. 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 Well, next, maybe I'll call in next week with some more substantive questions about the war itself. But I appreciate you commenting on some of those. Thanks for the call. All right. Sterling. And Sterling, if you're there, there's a mute button that should be in the bottom left to unmute yourself. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, Aaron, it's like, I can't tell you, my life would be totally different if you and your dad were not in it. Um, I've definitely learned a, an unbelievable amount from your father. I did have to say that. Um, and I, I, as far as the, the last caller, um, I don't necessarily trust the right so much. I think they definitely, I mean, I think they speak out of both sides of their mouth. I think they're definitely pro-war historically. So I don't know what to say about Tucker. I absolutely have no time for Hillary. I'm heartbroken over Jon Stewart and Colbert, and there just seems to be so many progressives that seem to just, I don't know what's happening with them. Um, and that's kind of, it's just awful because we're losing a number of people that could really um, be a voice for, um, per, I don't even know, I guess now leftist causes. I don't even know what to call myself anymore because I thought I was <laughs> yep. a progressive and it's like, ugh. Yep. As far as Ukraine and Russia, um, as, let's start with Russia. I think that... Um, I think they preemptively and defensively did what they did. And I think they didn't, ha they didn't see a choice because if you look at what they've been watching, now they're not busy involving themselves all over the world and other peoples, um, you know, like we do in South America, what we, how we've horribly handled the Middle East. It's just disgusting. Um, so they see all of that. And I think, and then they've seen the past four years of nothing but Russia, Russia, Russia blaming um, and Hillary. I think they just saw the writing on the wall that we are warmongers, we're not done until Russia is done. 
And um, I just, I really believe that they acted preemptively. They just weren't going to let them get any further. We have military bases basically surrounding them. And Ukraine was just a no-go zone. And they just started playing, even just playing with Ukraine for them was like, it's just not going to happen. So, uh, yeah, and I'm definitely the type of person that would like to see somebody, as awful as it sounds, attack somebody before, I mean, be attacked before they respond. Um, but I don't see where they really had an option. I don't. I just feel like it was getting too it. close. Close for them. Okay, yeah. so, and then Ukraine. Okay, so we have insanely armed far-right people. And what I've noticed through history is I think at this point, after the Holocaust, they've decided that far-right mentality can be pretty useful. It's very, it's so tunnel-visioned for nationalism, and they're very violent people. Um, so they can work for you, but they can also be, I mean, it's such a gamble. It was such a risk and obviously pretty stupid to do this. But I'm wondering if they're looking at this, um, whoever fired these uh, missiles, that winter is coming. I mean, it's right there. It is at the door. And NATO's not exactly responding as I think they may have hoped that they would. Um, I think they, you know, with all of the media attention on Zelensky and just everybody's so behind you. And, you know, I have a church in my town that um, was in the newspaper flying. Just They were running around at church in Ukrainian flags six months ago. And so I think they see all of this, but that was six months ago. So now they're hearing whispers of, you know, Americans, progressives, or some people want peace and they're hearing about they want negotiation. And I don't think that's an option for these people. They don't want this either. Um, and I, Zelensky may want it. We all think it's the absolute best thing. But so they see all of this happening, um, but they see NATO has no skin in the game, really. But they also know that Poland has a rising far right. And it's terrifying, as absolutely terrifying as that is. Um, I think if you did that, you know, I, and I don't know if they had Zelensky's permission or not. If you sent, if you put two missiles, even just two, you would try to draw them into the game, give them skin in the game and drag NATO into it. And I think that was just the whole point to try and get something more happening for them before the winter came, because Russia is also regrouping. And if I was in military and a huge monster country was at my back and they were stepping back to regroup. And I don't know anything about them. I don't know if that I know they might be aligning with Iran. They may align somehow a little bit with China. I mean, you have this whole BRICS things now where everything is changing. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to get in the mind of far right people, but I'm just trying to figure out what exactly went on there because I never thought for one second it was Russia. I just, right. it you never make a very, sense. you make a very strong case for why this could have been a false flag. And, uh, you know, oh, I, and, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, we'll never know unless something else comes out. It's for me, this stuff is hard to prove, but certainly I know I, I totally get why that is suspected. And, yeah. uh, you know, ultimately, whatever the motive was, it, it underscores how reckless this war is and why oh. it could be stopped. So, so thank you for the thank you for the call. Uh, yeah. Time, so I'm going to take other calls. But thank you for thank you for calling it. Appreciate yeah, it. No problem. Thank you. OK, Andrew. Hey, Aaron. Hi there. Hey, um, my question is kind of pretty quick. I wonder, um, I think some of your statements and writing have been compelling, as well as just reading things from like the Kiev Post about Zelensky's attempts to actually negotiate peace before this invasion um, in like 2019. And I think a lot of people in the West who are more or less informed um, who have some idea about Zelensky, they see this like um, 
very cynical, coke-fueled actor enjoying his role. And it's possible that that's part of it, but I wonder, um, what do you think about, like, should we really be looking at Zelensky as a little bit more of a hostage? Um, You can't even look at footage of Zelensky without finding Nazi insignias on the uniforms or skin of his security detail. And you got to imagine, it's still, it's still, I... I mean, it's understandable. I don't think it's respectable because it's like you're sacrificing tens of thousands of lives for, in exchange for yours and the hope that maybe you'll get to your mansion in Florida one day. But I'm just curious, like, do you think it would be worthwhile to to kind of um, focus on that understanding or portrayal of Zelensky instead of this, oh, he's just a cynical, evil figure? It's more, it's more yeah, sad than yeah. that, I think. I'm totally uh, favorable to that interpretation of Zelensky. Now, of course, we could be totally wrong. He could just be a completely cynical opportunist who, you know, when he ran, he saw that there was a mood for peace. So he exploited that and pretended to be for peace. And then when he came in, he pretended some more and then ultimately uh, ended up going with the far right and, and, um, uh, and, and sabotaging the mandate he was elected on. Um, that's all possible. It's, it's completely, it, it, it's really hard to interpret people's motives. You know, even even politicians. Um, so who knows? But yes, given uh, given what I know, I am favorable to the view that he, he has just been intimidated. I mean, if people threatening to kill him, you know, th- that has an impact. And this is something that Stephen F. Cohen, uh, who is a late Russia scholar, warned warned about back in October 2019 in this interview we did, which if you haven't seen it. I recommend it. Cohen basically said that, you know, Zelensky has a really historic opportunity now. He was elected on a peace platform, but the far right is threatening his life. And uh, unless the U.S. has his back, he won't succeed. And I, and I think, you know, so just based on what I know, I, I'm predisposed to believe that he was essentially taken hostage and he's been boxed in. Now, since then, he's certainly doubled down on uh, being cynical and, um, and, uh, and look what happened to him when he tried to negotiate peace with Russia. He was sabotaged from the outside by Boris Johnson. So it's just, um, I think at this point, he's, just, he's embraced his role. He, has no, he sees no uh, choice but to go along with what the West wants and what the far right wants. And uh, so, yeah, that's, anyway, that's a long way of saying I agree with your interpretation. Right on. Well, I mean, a lot, a lot of my thoughts there are, are really based off of your and other, you know, honest journalist writing. So you, you, you can take the credit for that. It's not original. I was going to say one more thing. Um, I have been kind of looking for Russia's, Russian scholars to, um, to, you know, send around to people who are, uh, who have this air of respectability like Cohen. Um, I've, Definitely appreciated the interviews you had done with Cohen and when he would occasionally be on Democracy Now! and other places. But w- would you recommend like a book to start out with of Cohen's? I know he had written a lot. Um, but yeah, I just don't, I haven't read anything of his in long form other than some articles. Uh, he's got two books that were very influential on me. One is called Soviet Fates and Lost Alternatives. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, it's about how, you know, it's a, you know, look at the Soviet Union and also just about how in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, instead of the U.S. treating the defeated Russia as a 
as a partner, it, it continued the policy of seeing it as a weakened adversary and how, how catastrophic that was. Um, and then there's also Failed Crusade, which also is about that period as well. So I recommend those books. Um, and there's a great new book coming up very soon by Nikolai Petro, who's at the University of Rhode Island and is a former State Department advisor. And it's called, I think it's called The Tragedy of Ukraine. And it's very specific to Ukraine, but I learned so much from it. Uh, and because he has access to Ukrainian sources that I just don't. And it's Can really you tell me the name of the book again. You said the our author was Nikolai Petrov. Nikolai Petro, P E T R O, and it's called The Tragedy of Ukraine. And let me actually just check right now to see if it's available for pre order. Uh, Tragedy of Ukraine. Um, it should come out. Yeah, so it's available for order, and it comes out. Uh, oh, it, it comes out. In, it comes out early next year. Okay, but, cool. But you can pre-order it, it. The subtext is what classical Greek tragedy can teach us yes. about resolution. Okay, yes, I found that yes, yes. And, and and that sounds like it's like an academic book about Greek tragedy, but it's really. That's that's a part of the book, but the there's but the bulk of it is about just what's happened in Ukraine in the last uh, eight years, and also the context for Ukraine and the and the divide in Ukraine between you know uh, far right nationalists uh, who only see one Ukrainian character, this this homogenous Galician idea of Ukraine that's rooted in Bandera, and then the the part of Ukraine that's rooted in the Donbas, which is about recognizing Ukraine's multi ethnic character and. Um, recognizing that it is two, you know, two very different tendencies, one that it's aligned with Russia and one that despises Russia and the need to yeah. basically find a solution that recognizes the plurality and doesn't try to impose one on the other. And so it's a great book. Right on. Can I just get, uh, get your quick thoughts on a couple other authors? There's one guy I heard recently named Ronald Suni, who has written a good bit of, Don't he's written him, a good bit about yeah. Lenin. Gorbachev. Okay. And then, um, well, anyways, thanks for the book rec. Um, I'll, I got that one bookmarked for whenever it's available or maybe I can find a PDF, but I won't take any more of your time. Thanks for get, taking thanks the call. call. All right. And this will be our last caller, unfortunately, because I'm out of time. Jonathan, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was, I was calling about the, uh, you know, the recent, uh, censorship of, uh, of Kit Clarenberg and, uh, and Meta's, uh, you know, long tradition, I guess, at least for the last couple of years, of particularly heavy-handed censorship, which, you know, and enforcement of official talking points, which they're laundering through the so-called uh, fact-checking regime. Like, it's been it's certainly been done to my group, which is like a MMT economics education group, Real Progressives, where they basically were laundering official talking points on inflation, but before they were only targeting small groups like ours, and it seems like they've uh, certainly graduated to being particularly aggressive to uh, even smaller news organizations like Grey Zone and Mint Press News. And I wondered if you had yeah, any so thought. This, so, so this was okay. So, so Kit Clarenberg at the Grey Zone wrote an article about the about what is known about the relationship between FTX, this crypto company, and Ukraine, because FTX had a fundraiser for Ukraine. And so Kit, so Kit wrote this article at the Gray Zone, and then the Gray Zone put on its Instagram account just a link to the article. And then Instagram came in and, and 
put a label on it, which says false information reviewed by independent fact checkers. And it said that this article is false because there's no evidence that uh, Ukraine was that that FTX used this Ukraine fundraiser to launder money. Right. That's what the fact checker said. The problem, though, is that the article says the exact same thing. It says there's no evidence so far that this was used for any kind of uh, illegal money laundering. So that's what the article says. So they fact check an article for saying something that the article didn't say. And the correction is exactly what the article says. All the article did was basically look at what is known about about that whole story and just raising the question that, you know, given how much malfeasance FTX was involved in, you know, th- these are the questions we have to ask about uh, this whole Ukraine fundraiser. That's all it did. It wasn't saying, it wasn't making any allegation that this was used for money laundering. So that's a really funny case of, of fact-checking an article uh, and correcting it to come up with a claim that the article actually also makes. That, I thought that was really funny. Um, and uh, that's, so, so that's what I know about it. I mean, that's the, there's a part that's really not funny because in the sense that, you know, Kit Clarenberg is kind of like you, like very, very careful about what he says and bringing yeah. the receipts and very, you know, again, like very, very super careful not to say anything that could be because, you know, people are looking and trying to pick apart what you're doing. Like you never say anything you can't back up and neither does he. Yeah. And, you know, again, they are they're using this to censor very legitimate <laughs> Uh, positions and know. you know things that are legitimate arguments and like what I don't know like it's very very to me well, it strikes me as very very sinister. Oh, of course it's sinister. Of course it is. Of course it is. I, I, I'm not trying to minimize it. Um, I just have to laugh at it because it's so comical. I've never seen a fact check of something. I, I've never seen it for someone try to fact check an article uh, for making a claim that the fact checker ultimately asserts was the problem with the article. So it's like the fact check was there's no evidence that there's money on that. This was used for money laundering. And that's what the article says too. I've never seen that before. And that's why I just have to laugh. And but of course, yes, of course it's sinister. And it speaks to just the, the complete corruption of this whole disinformation racket where it's not about, um, it's not about actually countering disinformation or, you know, or, or being factual. It's about policing narratives that are inconvenient to, you know, those in power. And, this and that's the part really, that is funny. Yeah. It, it yeah. kind of calls to mind the circumstances under which I got blocked by Elliot Higgins, uh, you know, because we were actually discussing your, your work on, on Syria. Uh-huh. And uh, basically he was lamenting and just like crying to heavens. Why doesn't anyone ever believe the official narrative? And I'm <laughs> like, have you thought about asking your CIA and MI6 buddies not to tell so many whoppers? Yeah. And next thing I know, I was blocked. But, I mean, it's kind of like a reflection of that same sentiment, that crying to heavens. Why doesn't anyone believe the official narratives? And now they're using kind of a heavy-handed way of, of you know, just trying to swat us away for, for asking those questions. You know, can I just say that, that, that Elliot Higgins is, um, I mean, look, he, he's involved in some really shady stuff. And he's involved actually in covering up war crimes. Um, uh, that's what he's done. But he's also provides a lot of levity so for example in his book he has a book it's a memoir and let's assume he wrote it he talks about seymour hirsch okay the greatest journalist i think of all time in fact i just saw him uh on friday um i i visited him in washington and he's doing great and anyway so hey so hirsch 
did these amazing stories in the, in the London Review of Books about Syria, where Hirsch got, you know, U.S. officials on the record telling him that what the U.S. was saying publicly about chemical weapons used by Syria was completely undermined by the evidence that they had. And that the evidence they had was actually that these, that this one particular incident in Ghouta in 2013, which Obama almost bombed Syria over, that was likely carried out by sectarian death squads. And so Higgins got really mad at the story and tried to, you know, smear Hirsch and get actually the, the London Review of Books to cancel Seymour Hirsch. And what H Higgins has this line in his book where he says um, that all Hirsch had to do to get the truth was to read my blog. Okay. So Higgins, who's this guy who works for this NATO troll farm, is saying that the greatest investigative journalism, I think of all time, but certainly of his generation, all he had to do, you know, ignore his own sources, ignore the documents he got, which included a, a lengthy report that was circulated in the Pentagon about how uh, Syrian rebels were trying to acquire chemical weapons. All Hirsch had to do was instead read Higgins's blog. And that's the kind of delusional arrogance that permeates these people, where they're, they've really convinced themselves, I think, that because they're disseminating the official narrative, that they hold the truth. And even something as damning as U.S. officials leaking information that undermines the narrative, to them, all that is just disinformation and propaganda. And their blog is enough to disprove the reporting of one of the best to ever do it. And I just find that really funny. So the Milai and the Abu Ghraib guy needs to take pointers from uh, exactly. from Elliot. <laughs> exactly, 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 exactly. Yeah, that yeah. is funny. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, all right. That's Don, all I got. Thank you for the call. Thank you for the call. All thank right. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's all the time I have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great 